Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Well, hi, everyone. On this episode of Looking Forward, we're going to talk about the gut and brain connection, how bacteria influence how we feel physically and mentally, and other fascinating related stuff. Our guest is an expert on such things. She's Dr. Amy Vollmer. Well, hi, Amy. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here today, person of your expertise. If you could just tell the audience a little bit about what you do, Amy, then we'll get into more of the specifics of what we're going to focus on. Sure. I am a faculty member in the biology department at Swarthmore College, where I have just completed my 31st academic year. Good for you. And I teach microbiology and biotechnology courses. Microbiology and biotechnology? Okay. What do we, we want to talk to you today about the brain-gut access connection, which I think is a fascinating topic. I think the listeners will think so as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what we mean by the brain-gut access connection, Amy? Okay. First of all, I call it the gut-brain axis. Gut-brain, okay. It's because my focus is on the gut microbiome. So as a microbiologist, one of the new frontiers of research in the past couple of decades has been our ability to describe the population of good bacteria that we carry in our guts. And it turns out we carry many more bacterial cells in and on our body than we do human cells. And those bacteria have a huge impact on our health and our well-being. Wow. Well, we'll get into this, but up until recently, who was even thinking this? You know, nobody, right. nobody, nobody talked about it. It was bacteria were over there, we're over here. Okay. Well, and also that bacteria were harmful, right? That's the whole attitude that we had developed about bacteria because, of course, uh, many, many illnesses are caused by bacteria. And so as soon as you figure that out, then you just assume that any bacterium is a bad one. And, and in fact, that, that is the furthest thing from the truth that without the good bacteria in our guts, we could not achieve good health. And it dots, it's not just us, it's all kinds of plants and animals that have what's called microbial commensals, right? So bacteria that live in and on us and that contribute to our well-being. They get something out of the interaction too, but we get something out of the interaction. So it's kind of positive symbiosis. Boy, Amy, this is, this is already great information, and it sounds like if I was a PR person, I'd be saying that bacteria have gotten a very bad rap. Well, yeah. I appeared on, on a podcast recently, and um, I said to them that bacteria are kind of like teenagers. You only hear about the bad teenagers, but we all know that many, many teenagers are really great, and in fact, they're the future of our country. So I think bacteria have the same PR problem that teenagers have. Okay, and we're going to work on that here. Before we actually got on the air, you had mentioned to me that really you had gotten involved with the gut-brain axis connection through some sort of a project with a colleague that was about hummingbirds. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into all of this? 
Well, so I think one of the things that people don't realize about science is oftentimes we start out investigating something that's just a curiosity. We don't start out by saying we're going to cure this or find the answer to that. Now, some, some scientists do, but a lot of uh, basic scientists are just doing research because we want to kind of figure out the natural world. And so at a small liberal arts college, many of the student research projects are, are curiosity driven. So in the biology department at Swarthmore, there's kind of one of each type of biologist. So I'm the only microbiologist on campus. And um, I had a colleague named Sarah Hebert Birch, who has recently retired, but she was the only vertebrate animal physiologist on our campus. We have a, a plant biologist, we have an ecologist, you know, we kind of have one of everything. And so there were students taking her classes and my classes, and the students said, hey, we'd like to try to get on the gut microbiome bandwagon right? This is when the gut microbiome stuff was first starting coming out and people were studying human guts and they were studying mouse guts. And so there were a group of students who said, we'd like to feed the mice something and see if we can change their gut microbiology. And so Sarah and I both kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, okay, let's try it. Give it a shot. And about 10 years ago, we published a paper that talked about the fact that when we change the kinds of fats in the diets of mice, we can shift the gut microbial profile in the same way that human gut microbial profiles are changed when we change our diets. So that was kind of interesting and um, that was kind of fun, but we really didn't think that it would, that bigger projects need kind of bigger labs, big university labs. And so we just did this as a kind of a trial and we said in our paper at the end, uh, we hope that other people pick up on this, people who can launch larger scale trials. It turns out that my, my colleague, Sarah Hebert Birch, is actually the hummingbird whisperer. She knows so much about hummingbirds and she captures them in the wild and she studies them and she lets them go. And so it occurred to her and some of her students that perhaps what we should look at is the hummingbird gut microbiome. Most of the gut microbiome studies have been done either in humans or in laboratory animals tame domesticated organisms. And wild animals, of course, are more difficult to study because A, you have to catch them, and B, they have to poop for you, right? If you're okay. gonna study <laughs> Okay. So most people don't wanna run around chasing wild animals and hoping they'll poop. So, but, but Sarah knows how to catch them in these mist nets, very gentle nets. And as she catches them, they perch on a little tube, and because they're stressed, they pee and poop right into that tube and then she weighs them and she bands them and she measures their fat and she kind of lifts up their pants to see if they're boys or girls and then she lets them go and in that capture we get poop which is what we're interested in because that is an indicator of what's inside the guts right what comes out so in fact sarah and her students did this for hundreds of of hummingbirds in the pacific northwest and what we then did was used techniques in the laboratory to identify down to the genus level, right? So kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species is the classification in biology. And we can get down to the genus level, the identities of the bacteria that are carried around in the guts of these hummingbirds. And the question that we were asking was um, some of these hummingbirds migrate and some of them are resident up in the Pacific Northwest. The migrating hummingbirds come all the way from Mexico. So the question we were asking is, does migration 
change the physiology of the hummingbird such that it's reflected in the profiles of bacteria in the guts? And the short answer is yes, and we're still actively analyzing those data. So as I started to get into this area of research, Jeff, I started teaching about it in my microbiology class. And I have to tell you that these are fairly new lectures compared to the standard microbiology lectures that I'd given for my first 20 years at Swarthmore. And as I started lecturing on the gut microbiome, those lectures became the most popular ones in my class. And instead of just focusing on the gut microbiome, I started to go kind of on a little sidetrack and read about the connection between the gut and the brain. And I devoured a lot of papers about the connection between the gut and the brain. And so I, in fact, expanded the lectures in my microbiology course to include not only the gut microbiome, but a new um, set of lectures on the gut-brain axis. And so that's what you picked up on. Wow. Follow up on that. It's a perfect segue. How does the gut-brain axis connection relate to our listeners' physical and mental health? How could knowing about that or what you've learned about it, it's sort of like, what's in it for them? What, are they, what is important about that? We know about hummingbirds, but what about us? We know that we can change our mood when we consume alcohol, right? Right. right. That's just something that not all of your listeners will know, but many. And certainly if they don't know it first person, they've seen the behavior of their colleagues change when they consume alcohol. So what you drink that goes down into your intestine gets absorbed and that absorption of the alcohol ends up affecting your brain chemistry. So that's not new. But what we now know is that the food we consume goes down into our guts and it's processed by our bodies. But then there's some foods that we can't process like fiber and the gut microbes process the fiber. And as they process the fiber, they generate waste products. We generate waste products when we process food, right? And the bacteria also generate waste products. And their waste products are these small molecules. Sometimes they produce alcohol. Sometimes they produce other small molecules called short chain fatty acids. Um, And so these small molecules get absorbed, just like alcohol gets absorbed. And when those small molecules get absorbed, they end up circulating all over your body. And one of the places your circulation, your blood vessels circulate is your brain. So the same mechanisms that help us absorb all kinds of nutrients that are delivered all over our body will absorb these microbial waste products. And those waste products evidently have the ability to sometimes alter our brain chemistry. In good or bad ways? In, in, in many different ways. Okay. The other thing we now realize is there's a a pair of nerves called the vagus nerves, and they they connect pretty much all of your internal organs, starting in your gut and going all the way directly up to your brain, like an express line, right? Not having to go all the way through the circulation, through the heart, through the lungs and everything to get to the brain. This is like the express link. Not only is in an express link, the vagus nerve itself has ability to bind to some of these waste products. And so in the treatment of depression, 
we know that some of the, the antidepressive drugs act on those same vagus nerve receptors. So now we have two ways of kind of affecting behavior. One is directly into the brain and one is along the vagus nerve. And both routes can be influenced by microbial metabolic products, the waste products of, of bacteria metabolizing the food that we can't digest. So you can eat certain foods that might actually have a positive influence on the brain? We should talk about that really right away. What can the listeners eat that might trigger those more positive responses? We'll even call them antidepressive responses, where bacteria, the good guys, are going to help. This, this would be the part of my lecture when I say to the students, and what you're going to realize is your mom was right all these years. <laughs> you want to eat as, me, as many helpings as you can of unprocessed, therefore raw, washed, but raw, fruits and vegetables. Foods that are high in fiber, not foods that have been peeled and canned and baked and mashed and all the fiber and nutrients have been kind of processed out, but raw vegetables and fruit. The fiber content, high fiber foods, not refined rice, right, but, the, but with the kernel on it, not refined wheat, but whole grain, high fiber. The fiber is what we cannot digest as humans. And it is little gut microbes just do their happy dance when they see fiber. So that happy dance with those kinds of foods will translate into a happier brain? Yes. Wow. The microbial byproducts come in a several different classes, all right? And some of them are pro-inflammatory and some of and inflammation is bad for us. We kind of know that, right? Um, and some of them are anti-inflammatory. And so basically, when you consume high fiber food, it's anti-inflammatory. And so you, you're not as swollen, you're not as puffy, you know, you don't have aches and pains in your joints. Those are all the inflammation kind of symptoms that are, are prevalent in our society where we eat a lot of processed foods. Yes. So my advice to people is we should eat like hunter gatherers and more like gatherers than like hunters. So if you can think about back in the days of hunter gatherers, it wasn't as if there was a woolly mammoth kill every Monday morning and everybody ate their fill of meat, right? You couldn't count on those kind of kills, right? Those hunting yields. And if, you know, somebody caught a rabbit, there wasn't going to be a lot of rabbit to go around the whole family. True. And so you tended to eat the fruits and nuts and vegetables, you know, plant products that were collected. And when you collected nuts and fruits, you didn't have bushel baskets that you carried around. You had a, a palm full of fruits or a palm full of nuts. And so that's the way we should be eating. Wow. Not bags and bags of almonds, but, you know, a handful at a time. Kind of a quarter of a cup is what people say, a third of a cup at a time. You know, what's interesting about this, Amy, is that with all the concerns that are expressed, and I think legitimately that we hear this is good for you, but then it's not good for you. And this is good for them. Fruits and vegetables, unprocessed foods, I don't think there's been a knock against them. It's just, 
it's so hard to implement sometimes when there's all this other stuff around you. Well, yeah, part of it is convenience. So I, I noted in my own family, when I bought apples, nobody would grab an apple and just eat it. But if I cut that apple into slices, they were gone. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I know that there are some convenience stores where you can now buy a little plastic cup that has sliced apples in it, right? And it'll fit in your cup holder and you can eat that, right? And so I think they're trying. They're trying to help us eat right. But yeah. in fact, that's, that's the trick. The other thing I will say is that, as you know, Jeff, there are some um, communities that are deserts for highly nutritious food. Yes. Particularly in some of our poor neighborhoods, the local convenience store doesn't have a lot of refrigeration, can't pay for the fresh produce, and so they're stocked with a lot of processed foods. And so there is a disparity between communities that have high quality raw food that requires refrigeration because there's spoilage and areas um, where it's more kind of pre-packaged, pre-processed food. So that's the other thing we need to be aware of is that those, the, the health disparities um, and the access to good food disparities are kind of the background to the eventual health disparities that we see when we compare communities of poverty and communities of wealth with the availability of healthy food. And so what you're, I'm imagining is that the gut microbiome profiles in these individuals are already not balanced to benefit the host, to benefit the host. Yes. And now if you're eating pro-inflammatory foods, your brain and your body are going to be fighting inflammation instead of being sharpened to kind of be ready to learn and ready to observe and ready to react. So, you know, if you think about the way Olympic athletes train and what they eat, they are incredibly careful about reducing refined sugar. The sugar that they eat is in complex carbohydrates because that's going to help the gut microbes right? Their brains are going to be sharp. Their joints aren't going to be all swollen. We can't all eat like Olympic athletes. We can't, many of us can't afford that kind of um, diet. And so that's something we need to think about to, to rescue individuals from food deserts, from quality food deserts. If we want to help, especially young kids, right? Be ready to learn and be kind of in good training condition to learn and to function in society. That's something that we just all need to think about. And, and school gardens is a wonderful way to have young people understand where produce comes from. I have a really good friend, Theonda Manzara, who is the founder of a wonderful organization in Delaware called Healthy Food for Healthy Kids. And I highly recommend her to you. Okay. She started out planting one garden at Springer School in, uh, I think, 2005. And now is in over three dozen schools all over Delaware. Wow. Where schools have their own gardens and the kids, the students at the school, and sometimes the teachers will learn how to plant and then they get to harvest. Oh my goodness, harvest day is so exciting. And then they eat. And you know, you can you can pick a pea pod off of the vine and crunch on it. Oh my gosh, I've never eaten something that good. <laughs> <laughs> Many of the young children d didn't know how pumpkins grew or how corn grew or anything like that. And so 
literally planting those seeds, but also figuratively planting the seeds in the, in the brains of the students and teaching them the importance and the joy of growing your own food and eating out of your garden is just an important thing that we could be doing to help rescue, especially impoverished communities from food deserts. Great points and a great example going on in Delaware. Access, access to good quality food is very, very important. Amy, as you think about where we've come from in our understanding of the gut-brain axis, and we've certainly come a long way in a short period of time, as you look out over the next five or 10 years, let's say, and even that's difficult because who would have known we'd be talking about COVID-19 right now six months ago. But as you, as you look out ahead without understanding that who really knows, what changes do you see occurring in the landscape in terms of that connection? And more importantly, even than that is, what does it mean to the listener, to the consumer? Um, I love thinking about this, Jeff. I'm so glad you asked. We all know how breathalyzers work, right? When there's a driving checkpoint, I keep coming back to alcohol, but it's something that everybody's familiar with. You're breathing to this machine and they can tell you what your blood alcohol levels are. I think in the not so distant future, we are going to have breathalyzers that are going to be able to detect other small molecules. So alcohol is a very small molecule. It's not very big. And because of that, it's volatile. It will vaporize, which is what breathalyzers measure. I am imagining breathalyzers that are going to allow us to measure other small molecules. And I'll tell you why that's important. One, gotten some some international attention, and one that's just anecdotal. So I'll tell you the international one first, and your listeners can Google this lady. There is a woman in the United Kingdom who was married to a gentleman, and they've been married for many years. And after a while, he started to kind of smell funny, and she kept telling him, go take a shower. You smell funny. Or go brush your teeth. Your breath smells funny. And he would kind of harumph around and, you know, he would do what she said, but she, he just smelled funny. And a few years later, uh, he he developed Parkinson's. Oh. So she and her husband finally went to a Parkinson's support group. Parkinson's is a very debilitating disease. And they wanted to, she wanted to learn how to support him, but she also wanted to frankly talk to some other caregivers because not very many people understand the burdens of caring for someone. And they, they were in a ga- gathered in a room. And as soon as she approached the door to the room, she smelled the smell. This was an odor given off by people who had Parkinson's. Wow. And in fact, she could go in the room and meet a couple and tell you which was the person who had the disease. And so the scientists who were running the study group got very excited and they, did, they, they gave her a test. They chose about, I, don't, I can't remember, about 40 people, individuals, some of whom had Parkinson's, some of whom didn't. And they asked her just to give them a whiff and tell them whether she had Parkinson's. And they had chosen 19 patients who had Parkinson's and 21 patients who did not. Well, she identified 20. So they said, well, that means you're not perfect. You know, you're wrong by one. (laughs) Well, it turned out that one person was pre-Parkinson's. He developed Parkinson's in a few years. Wow. So where does this odor come from? It comes from the small molecules that are coming out of your gut. Just like after somebody's ingested alcohol, you can sometimes smell alcohol on their breath. That's just, we know this. So, So there's that one example. The other example I will tell you is I have personally been around three individuals who either were diagnosed at the time or later diagnosed 
as suffering from severe depression. In each case, their breath had a particular bouquet. Jeff, I can't tell you exactly what it smelled like, but it doesn't smell like anything else I've ever smelled. And I smelled it three times. Mm. It was a little kind of almost like acetone or paint thinner, but not quite, and a little bit like fish. I mean, so it was just, I can't explain exactly, but I, if I smelled it again, I would be able to identify it. And so I am imagining breathalyzers that might be able to help us early diagnose mental health diseases. Wow. Dietary mitigation, right? Yes. Instead of taking a drug, um, and you can Google this. In the New York Times, there was an article about a psychologist or a psychiatrist who prescribed oysters to his patients, and they felt better after they ate oysters. <laughs> so there's something going on between your diet and the small molecules that your gut makes and those small molecules affecting your brain chemistry. So I think the future is exciting because I would like to raise mental health to the same stature as physical health. And right now, there is still this kind of taboo or this marginalization of mental health. If somebody had a broken arm, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, it's all in your head. Just it'll get better on its own. Let's just put some scotch tape around it, right? And yet, people who suffer from mental health, sometimes they themselves don't know it. But even if they do, it's often difficult for them to get the help they need. The mind and the body are connected. And we can't really be well. This feeling of well-being can't happen if you just fix one part and not the other. Yes. And there is where the, the gut and the brain, you know, there's the intersection there. You know, you, you had said something there that I was going to follow up and ask you, but you covered it, which is the exciting thing is not just the notion that you smell something and you say, oh, this guy has Parkinson's, but you talked about the potential for early intervention. It's not too late by the time you find this out. Remember, that lady smelled the one guy before he developed the symptoms. Yes. So the other thing I would do, and sometimes people do this, is I sometimes keep a food diary. And if you write down what you eat and you write down how you feel, that should correlate within a day or two. And there are certain foods, when you eat them, they make you feel better. And there are certain foods, after you eat them, you kind of regret it and you know, it doesn't make you feel so good. You know, a hangover would be an example of one where you, yes. you overindulge, right? You know, when we think about comfort food, Yes. We think about the fact that those are pretty high starchy foods. Nobody says my comfort food is a carrot. They might yeah. say carrot cake. They might say macaroni <laughs> and cheese or baked potatoes or mine is um, grilled cheese sandwiches. So the comfort food are high in carbs. And maybe those carbs, when they get broken down, make a little bit of alcohol and make us feel a little bit better, right? We don't know. But if you keep a food diary, you might be able to identify things that make you feel better, make you feel more energetic, less lethargic, less puffy, your joints less achy. I think if the way to a better health is just eating better, that sure beats buying a lot of prescription medication. Now, we have a lot of people, as you know, who they've lost their jobs right now through COVID-19. We don't know whether or not they're going to, most of them will get their jobs back. Some have been furloughed, some have been let go. We have people who are, as I am, in a second career. We have people who are looking to change careers. And of course, as you well know, there are students who are pursuing careers. So as you think about all the great stuff you've shared with us, and again, you look forward over the next five or 10 years, where do you see potential opportunities for some of these people in this field of study that you're talking about? 
I think there are a lot of opportunities. There are opportunities in the food business, right? In grocery stores and gardening and food delivery and food production and all of that. You know, schools are going to be opening up, getting a job in the school cafeteria and helping serve the food and helping kids understand why they're eating what they're eating, right? Those, okay. are, those are important jobs. Food delivery, I think that these delivery systems that have come about because of social distancing might continue. And so I think there will be some opportunities there. I think people who want to retool and go back to school and learn, certainly learning how to deal with computers is very important. But as we go forward and in tracking individuals who've had COVID and things like that, we're going to need a lot of people who help us do tracking. So I know there's hiring going on, not only in, in the tracking, but in kind of understanding public health and reaching out into the communities where people may not have access to the internet or may not have access to good food and enabling them to have healthier lives. So I think there, I, I hope that the state and local governments will use some of the funds that the federal government is making available to help create healthier communities. And if anything, our social distancing may have taught us just how important being together and communicating with one another really is. So I think those are all really useful. If I were a student, no matter what I majored in, in, in school, I would take some biology. Most of the problems of the world are linked to biology. I would also take some computer science. Most of the problems of the world might help to be solved by the use of computers. In terms of that, the gut-brain axis connection. Do you see a lot of opportunities opening up in that world or some opportunities like for researchers or productions of new kinds of manufactured foods? You alluded to tests, testing saliva or breath, I guess it was. Yeah. Do you see th areas of opportunity in that realm itself? Well, I mean, I think whoever makes breathalyzers just yeah. has to put in more channels, right? Right now it only detects one thing. Yeah. And I think it'd be kind of cool to be able to detect different things. I mean, maybe we could even detect viruses in aerosolized breath as well, right? Because yeah. that's really how these respiratory viruses are passed. So being able to, if you breathed into something, that would sure be a lot easier than having a Q-tip go all the way up to your uh -huh. nose. Boy, right? So absolutely. You know, I, I think there's plenty of room for innovative people to try things. And so I don't know as much about that end, but I think there are plenty of smart people out there looking for opportunities. I would remind your listeners that it's also a chance for people to trick you into thinking you're buying something reasonable. So I think you have to use that brain of yours. Don't just believe everything you read on the internet or hear from people. Find out their credentials and find out what this is based on and look around a little bit before you fork out your hard-earned money. Good point. Caveat M tour. Uh, <laughs> if we could just close by you letting the listeners know, how can they find out more about Dr. Amy Vollmer and what you're doing there at Swarthmore, uh, whether they be would be students or current students or people who are 90 years old, it doesn't matter. How do they reach you and find out more about you? You can look me up at Swarthmore College. I'm the only Amy Vollmer there. I'm in the biology department. So if you go to the biology webpage, I'm there and all my contact information is there. And Volmer is spelled? V-O-L-L-M-E-R. In this case, it's almost exactly like it sounds. <laughs> well, Amy, thank you so much. This is great information. And even though we're in a very tough time right now, there's a lot of positive stuff that you've talked about that might be coming down the road for us. And that's encouraging. We have an opportunity to learn every day. And in fact, if you've gone through a whole day and haven't learned anything, it's a wasted day, Jeff.
I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.